Let's pray. Father, you are a sovereign God who orchestrates things for your glory. And we think of this, our, our youth ministry this morning, as the van dies on them um, unexpectedly. And uh, how you are using that for your glory. Or you are intentionally drawing the praise back to yourself. And we may not always see why or how, but you will. And we praise you for hardships and hiccups and difficulties that cause us, according to 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, that cause us to depend and rely on you. So I just pray for our youth and Drew and Justin and Katie as they're dealing with that situation that you would solve it in a way that brings you the most glory and satisfies them in you. And as we open your word this morning, we pray that your spirit would do what he does. Exalt Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, as our master, as our king, as our friend, as our brother, as our God. We are people desperate for you, God. Pray that your spirit would move and work and sanctify us through the washing of your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we're in verse 8. And in verse 8, we get another list of sins. Remember verse 5, that list of sins? That one was pretty heavy. Verse 5, put to death therefore... What is earthly in you? Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On, the account of, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And so we've got another list coming now in verse 8. And like the first list of sins in verse 5, which were primarily focused on sexual morality as the core issue of those sins, in verse 8, Eight, we again have an underlying primary sin issue that is revealed in a list or several different kinds of sins. In the list of sins in verse 8, the foundational sin that underlies all of them is our speech. This list of sins is about how we use our tongue. And how we use our tongue is a clear indicator of the condition of our hearts. So just avoiding sin is not the solution because avoidance doesn't put sin to death. Avoidance is passive and scripture is not passive. It is not reactive to sin. It does not promote reactivity to sin. Scripture promotes proactivity, to be proactive against sin, not just avoiding it, but pursuing its death. Like we just sang, by grace and grace alone do we slay our sin. And Paul says in verse 5, put to death that sin. So we have to proactively put that sin to death. So we're not interested in avoiding it. Of course, we do want to avoid sin naturally. But the way in which we go about avoiding it is by proactively pursuing its death. Christ has already put sin to death. And then we express 
Christ's victory in us by slaying that sin that our flesh wants to continue to pull out. And our flesh wants to run to the grave, dig up the dead sin, and pull it out like it's glamorous or beautiful or attractive when it's really a decaying, dead corpse that Christ has killed. And that's why sin looks so ugly when we put it on. And what we'll see later in verse 12 is he says, stop putting sin on, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. So Christ has slayed your sin. And it's dead, and it's buried, it's in the grave. We need to leave it there and put it to death in us that which Christ has already killed. And so avoiding these sins is not the solution because avoidance doesn't put sin to death. So we have to kill sin. We have to put sin to death. Now, to kill sins, we must smother it. We must suffocate it. We must drown our sin with something better because if we're not smothering and drowning our sin with something better then all we're doing is changing our morality. And changing morality isn't Christ-likeness. The Pharisees changed their morality. They behaved, and Jesus condemned them and gave them woes and said, careful, how you, careful not to be like the Pharisees. So changing your morality by just avoiding sin, just skirting around sin like, oh, I'm just not going to do that today, isn't really the issue. Because we can fake it for a long time. We can fake it in front of other people and look like we're not, we don't have a sin issue in our heart. And so we need to drown our sin in something else so that we're not just changing our morality. We need to change our hearts. And a heart change is a life change, and a life change is a product of daily establishing new habits in the Word and in prayer. Prayer that is saturated in self-examination of sin repentance and honesty before God. So when we get to verse 8, we first have to understand it in the context of verse 7 as well because seven, verse 7 says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. And so he's talking about who you used to be and then verse 8, but now you must put them all away. So you used to walk in these sins, but now, right? It reminds you of, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. And so we've got this, this is who you used to be. These sins used to be identifying markers of who you were, of your existence and living in the flesh. You were a sinner. You were not saved. You were destined for eternal separation from God. And sin, these sins marked you for wrath. That's what it says in verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And now Paul says, but that is not befitting of believers. You have a, you're a new creation in Christ. Christ has redeemed you. The Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart. You are no longer called sinner. You are called saint. You are called holy. You are called beloved. You are called friend. You are called sons and daughters. You are called victorious. You are called conquerors in Christ. So we have a new identity in Christ. And that new identity in Christ doesn't associate with these sins anymore because that's who we were and Christ put these to death. 
And so he says in verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Because verse 5, he's like, put these particular sins away. And then verse 8, he's like, you know, speaking of sin, let's just put them all away. Let's just take care of all of them. We shouldn't be sinning at all. And Paul knows the struggle against sin. He himself admits, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I do want to do. And, ah, it's hard. Hard being a Christian. Hard to live in perfection. Because we're not. And he knows that struggle. And yet we're commanded and encouraged. But now put them all away. Put them all to death. As he says in verse 5. And he gives us a list of particular sins to put away. That list is anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then verse 9. Do not lie to one another. So all these sins are expressed with our tongue. It's all expressions of the way that we speak. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? We heard this as kids. I mean, at least I did. Maybe you did. What goes in is what comes out. Right? Don't listen to that dirty music. What you listen to is what's going to come out of your mouth. <laughs> I was like, oh, whatever, mom and dad. And then I watch my kids walking around the house singing Minecraft songs. I'm like, oh, it's real. So, because that's what they take in, right? So out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in your heart is going to come out of you. And he, Jesus says that the mouth will convey what the heart feels and thinks. And the, the true condition of your heart will naturally come out in some way, shape, or form. That truth will find the light of day. Whether it's through your words or through your actions your heart will be revealed. It's just our nature. Which means that these are sins that reside within. But as they grow within us, they must find an outlet and, and circumstances and situations call these sins to the surface and then they pour out of us when we're not under the control of the Holy Spirit. So, these sins are ultimately about the tongue and how we use it. And you might be thinking, like, is it really a big deal how, what we say? I mean, they're just words. I mean, if I murder somebody, that's a big deal. But if I say I'm going to murder somebody, that's a nearly as big of a deal. It's still illegal to say you're going to do it. You realize that? But we would all agree that actually murdering somebody versus talking about it are very different things. And we'd say the action itself is worse. So are words really that important? Does it really matter what we say? Well, there are two ways in which it matters. It matters temporally and it matters eternally. How we use our tongue has temporal, in this life, consequences. And how we use our tongue has eternal consequences as well. And the temporal consequences in James 3, 5 through 6. And James is talking about the tongue in, ch in chapter 3 and he says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. So if there's any inclination in you that and eh, does it really matter what we say? Does it really have any impact on our lives? James says, absolutely. It has consequences in this life 
and the, the destruction that the tongue causes is a fire set on fire by hell itself. It's evil what he, is what he's saying. He's saying evil is the cause of the tongue's destructive nature. I think we would all agree that what we say has temporal, actual consequences in this life. If I stood up here and swore, used cuss words at the pulpit, you'd all be like, oh, what? We need to talk about whether this guy should be our pastor or not. That would have temporal, earthly consequences. When my wife says, we should clean the house, and I go, yeah, you should. That has <laughs> earthly, temporal consequences. I would know. I don't say those kinds of things to my wife. <laughs> Maybe sometimes I have. I've learned my lessons. But it's not just temporal, earthly consequences. There are real, eternal consequences too. And if you look at Matthew 12, 36, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then two verses later, he says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. I was talking to my kids about banality, just the, the idea that there are so many bane uses of words, just meaningless, worthless, pointless expressions that just flow out of our mouth that are junk and garbage and have no purpose or meaning. And we need to not be careless with our words, but meaningful with our words. And that takes practice and changing habits Meaning don't be careless with your speech and don't let your tongue ruin your life or ruin relationships or ruin others. But for our tongue to not be a spark that sets our whole life on fire, in order for that to happen, our hearts must be holy and righteous and, and from an unrighteous heart, from the sin that resides within, pours out ungodly speech and behavior. And it ruins people. It ruins ourselves, it ruins others. It ruins churches. It ruins entire nations. The history of the destruction of nations can be boiled down to one king saying another thing to another king. So we're going to examine these sins that are really a matter of a heart issue. So this is what we're getting at. Our whole point is to look at how our speech is a product of the condition of our heart. So let's examine these sins and check our hearts in the process the first sin on the list that Paul mentions is anger. Now the Greek word for anger does not mean like this sudden outburst of anger, but rather it refers to like a settled and constant and indwelling disposition of anger. A specific situation that makes this person angry is not the cause of their anger. That specific situation is simply the agitator that reveals their deeply seated anger that already resides within. So like people situations or circumstances are not the problem. The problem is the anger in the heart of the person. And so the people and the situations and the circumstances are merely the target of their misguided anger instead of the cause of their rooted anger. Right, we see this when we come home. A spouse comes home and blows up at the entire family after a long day of work. Right, I've done that before. Walk in the house, expend myself, pour myself out, 
into other areas of life, into other people. And I've got anger that's been stirring all day. My frustrations are building because I've got undealt with anger in my heart. And I walk in the door and someone put their shoes in the only place I have to walk. And my hands are full and I kick the shoes. I blow up and who put these shoes here? And everyone's like, whoa, dad's angry. When dad gets angry, the whole house just shuts down. Maybe you grew up in a home where dad was angry, or maybe mom, whatever. And what does that create in the home? It creates what we call dependency. When mom and dad get angry at the things that their children do, children start to feel this natural sense of it is dependent on me to create peace and safety in the home. Because if I make a mistake as a child in my home, Mom and dad don't like it. Mom and dad get angry and blow up at us. So in order to protect myself from their violence and their anger, I have to behave. Because what the children don't consciously realize, but they do subconsciously realize, is that mom and dad aren't emotionally or spiritually capable of managing their own well-being. And so they depend on my behavior to keep them happy. And then children carry a huge burden they were never meant to carry. And then as they grow up, into adulthood, they wonder why they're anxious and depressed and frustrated and angry and sad and they can't build solid relationships. So, anger destroys families. It ruins childhoods and it ruins future families. But there are ways in which anger isn't sin. Right? In Ephesians 4.26, Paul says, be angry. Sounds like a contradiction because he just said put away anger and then in Ephesians 4.26 he says be angry. But he says be angry and do not sin. Meaning there are ways in which you can be angry and it's not sin. Righteous anger or what we call righteous indignation is not sin. God himself can have righteous indignation, righteous anger and God can't sin so it's possible. Jesus flipped tables in the temple. That was Anger, and it was righteous anger as he was zealous for God's honor that was being abused by the money changers. Being angry at injustice that sin produces because you are motivated by your love for righteousness is not necessarily inappropriate. It can certainly become inappropriate, but it can also be very righteous because that anger for righteousness can spur on a pursuit of godliness and holiness that fights against the social injustices in the world and the sin that is reaching our communities. And it can lead us to fight for righteousness in our home, in our churches, and in the places that we live. But anger, when it's not righteous, is a very dangerous sin. I think Paul put this sin first on the list for a reason. Anger is that one emotion that one emotion that shuts down all other emotions. It is the most all-consuming, overpowering emotion of all the emotions. It overpowers all other thoughts, all other logic. It overpowers all rational, all rational thinking. It overpowers any righteous thinking, and it overpowers any good or godly or Christ-like behavior. Try laughing when you're angry. Try smiling when you're angry. 
Man, try laughing or smiling just when you're super irritated but not yet angry. Right? You ever just, in one of those moods, like, man, this, everything just bugs me right now. Ah! And someone's like, it's okay. And you're like, shh, get away from me. You know? Just irritated. It's hard to be happy. Now imagine that irritation just reaching its maximum frustration and being anger. Just angry. You can't feel anything else. You can't do anything else. You can't think anything else. It's just, that's why we call it scene red. Because that's all you see is red. It's like life with blinders on. There's no rational thinking to, to, to reach. There's no emotional balance to find because anger is ruling your thought process. It is childlike behavior because it is dependent fully on the prefrontal cortex of your brain that doesn't reach the thinking center, but just that, that, imm- that immature behavioral center, and we just can't access that thinking process. And, and so it's irrational and wild and childlike because children are immature, right? And they depend on that, that prefrontal cortex isn't developed yet, and so they constantly are doing immature things because they don't have that governing factor developed yet in the front of their brain that tells them, this isn't a good decision. And so they do bad decisions, and then they learn, and their brain develops as their parents teach them otherwise. But we can't access those like, other parts of our brain when we're angry. So to interrupt them with righteousness, we have to stomp out anger before it gets to that point. Try being sensitive or compassionate or gracious or understanding when you're angry. If you're super angry and your spouse comes up to you and goes, you know, let's just take a minute and think about this. Are you really understanding other people? Do you ever just go, you know what, I don't know how I just got angry, but yeah, you're right. Like that rarely happens. Maybe in a moment of God's grace that happens for you, but usually you're just like, Get out of my face, you know. Or I'm angry. Don't reason with me. I've done that to my wife. I've told her like, when I'm angry, don't try to reason with me. It just makes me more angry. She's like, that's stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I find you. (laughs) It's impossible to function on any other level when you're angry. It's immediate and it's all-consuming, and it leads to other problematic actions and sins as well. And if you think anger isn't that big of a sin, consider that anger leads to murder. I know what you're thinking. like, I would never murder anybody. Even no matter how angry I got, I would never murder anybody. That's probably true. But that's not the point. Jesus says in Matthew 5.21 that anger and murder are the same. Matthew 5, 21 through 22, Jesus says, have you, or, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anger leads to murder, and the heart of a murderer is an angry one. And Jesus' point in Matthew 5 is that murder and anger are equally as sinful because it's what's in the heart that matters. I mean, think about it. The law, the Old Testament law, says murder is sin. Our governing law, our federal law and our state law tells us that murder is illegal. So the laws are always saying, do not commit this action. Do you go to jail, though, if you think about murdering somebody? No. Do you go to jail if you want to murder somebody but don't actually do it? No. So the laws will tell you, oh, don't murder, but we can't guide or 
discipline you based on how you think or feel. So if you have murder in your heart, but you haven't performed the action, there's nothing the law can do about it. And Jesus' point is, I don't care what the law says. It's not about your actions. It's about your heart. The actions will follow the heart. And Jesus' point is that whether you murder that person or you don't murder that person, if you're angry at him in your heart, it's the same problem because the heart is what is judged, not the actions. So being angry is just as wicked as murdering somebody because it requires the same heart problem. That's a, that's a huge statement in a culture that elevates well, and historically, every culture has elevated murder as the greatest, greatest form of wickedness. And Jesus says, that thing that you elevate to the most significant form of evil is in every one of your homes. It's in every angry dad and every angry mother and every angry child. Heart of murder. And Jesus is getting to the point that Stop trying to fix your actions. Stop walking around like, I'm a good person because I haven't murdered anybody today. <laughs> Jesus is like, in your heart you have though because you're angry. And Jesus is like, stop, stop focusing on what you do. Like I said before, the Pharisees acted right and their hearts were far from God. So what you do or don't do is irrelevant. What matters is where your heart is at and that's the point Jesus is trying to get to. So when you get angry but don't murder, that doesn't make you any less liable to judgment than a murderer because you share the same angry heart. The solution to anger is joy. Joy is only found in Christ. And Christ is found where? In the Word. So we get joy by communing with God because that is exactly how Jesus constantly secured his joy in ministry and life by going away from the burdens of life to be alone with his father to be filled with the spirit because jesus is a human right so if you look in mark chapter 5 mark chapter 5 verse 30 it says in verses 24 through 29, there's a woman, discharge of blood for 12 years, suffered, many, or, uh, suffered much under many physicians, meaning she's been trying to fix this problem medically for years. And it, it got worse. And she heard about Jesus. There's crowds around Jesus. It's like trying to get to a, you know, a, a rock star at a concert, and they're surrounded by fans, and you're trying to reach that rock star. just want to touch their shoulder. Say that I touched this rock star one day. And then people are trying to get to Jesus because he's healing people left and right from town to town. And she says that she just wanted to touch his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And she did. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? He was not, in his flesh, was not constantly, in his humanity, was not, I'm sorry, not constantly, in his humanity, he was not uh, consciously aware that he had just healed somebody. Because what, what brought Jesus the awareness that he had just healed someone? 
power had gone out of him. What's his power? The Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit descended on Christ at baptism. He's filled with the Spirit. He is God himself. We tend to think that like Jesus just does all these things in the power of his own divinity, but he actually doesn't. He does it in his, in his humanity with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit drains out of him in his ministerial work. So he gets exhausted. And this is why Jesus is constantly retreated. And then we find in Luke 5.16, it says... But Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Why? To get filled up. Communion with his Father is how Christ was filled up. Communion with the Father. But Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So as he did ministry, the Spirit would drain out of him and he would retreat to be alone with the Father and be filled in the presence of his Father with love. And Jonathan Edwards describes the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity whom is the love between the Father and the Son. And that love is so real and so tangible, it is actually a third person of the divinity of God himself. It is an incredible reality. To think that God loves us with a love that is so powerful, it actually is a third divine personhood. That's insane that his love is that real. We, don't even, we can't even fathom that kind of love because our love is, tends to be mental and emotional. God has a mental and emotional love, but our love can't create, not the Holy Spirit wasn't created, but our love can't create God like God's does. So, in order to be filled with, this with the Holy Spirit, we need to be filled with God's love. And where do we get God's love? In communion with God. In the word and in prayer. Talk to God and God talks to us. This is why Scripture's constantly talking about the word itself. This is why Scripture is, I mean, there's an entire chapter. The longest chapter in the entire Bible has 175 verses in almost every single, it's Psalm 119, almost every single one of those verses is about the word of God. And then we find scriptures after scripture telling us to, to be sanctified in the word of God. And so we do ministry, we do life, the spirit pours out of us, we get drained and emptied by, of the power of God, and we need to do what Jesus did, retreat to desolate places and pray and commune with the Father to be filled with, this, filled with his love, to experience his presence. I mean, think about it. This makes perfect sense. And I've said this, I've given this example a thousand times, and I'm never going to stop sharing it. If I stopped talking to my wife, would our love grow? Of course not. I learn new things about my wife all the time. We've been married for 15 years and I'm still learning stuff about her. For those of you who've been mar married for 30, 40, 50, 60 years or however long, you can admit you still learn things about your wife. Have you perfected marriage yet? No. None of us have. We're always growing and learning even in our marriage. How, if our relationship with people on earth is dependent on our, our communion with them, then how much more is our relationship with God dependent on our communion with him? We have to get alone. We have to go to desolate places. And whether that's, and Jesus says in Matthew 6, that's a closet. Go to closet. Whatever it takes, find a place where it's you and God, alone, communing, and in the presence of God, with his word and in prayers. You talk to God and God speaks to you through his word, and you have this reciprocal 
uh, reciprocating relationship with God, or reciprocating communication with God, that love grows as you see the beauty of God exploding off the pages of the Word. And in the love for God that grows as you learn more about Him, you express that love back to Him and that relationship just flourishes and He fills you with His love, whom is His Holy Spirit. And that is how we put anger to death by the power of the Holy Spirit, which we get in communion with God. The second sin on the list is wrath. It's not like anger, it's a little different. Wrath is not a constant disposition, it is an outburst of anger. And this is the same Greek word that was used uh, for those who exploded in anger at Jesus' teachings in the synagogue in Luke 4.28, which says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Their anger at Jesus' teaching did not reveal that they had this like constant disposition of anger within. It was an outburst of anger because they heard something that they thought was not true, Jesus' teachings. And they got angry and they just burst out in anger. So wrath is circumstantial. Unlike anger, which is a constant, uh, continual disposition. Wrath is circumstantial. It's an explosion of anger. It's situational, meaning that the root problem with wrath is not anger. The root problem with wrath is a lack of self-control, making it inappropriate for believers because we're supposed to be filled with the Spirit who gives us fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. So we're to be Spirit-led and under self-control so we can obey 2 Corinthians 10.5, which says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. So when anger just as ready to burst out into wrath, we can take that thought captive to obey Christ if we're self-controlled in the power of the Spirit. And again, to be Spirit-filled, to be Spirit-led, we have to be in regular and constant communion with God. The third sin is malice. Malice is a more general word that refers to just kind of like a general moral evil. But we've got to put this word in its context because... The word really means like this, this running hatred for others that reveals itself in like several immoral activities. And, and if you look at the next couple sins that are on the list, slander, obscene talk, lying. Okay, so like anger and wrath are certainly expressed verbally. In fact, most often they are expressed verbally. And so it seems that what Paul is really after is our speech, right? I mean, Paul is referring to, when he talks about malice, He's talking about malicious speech. And malicious speech is the use of our words to intentionally cause harm to others. We've probably all done that at some point in our lives, at least when we were children. I mean, have you ever made fun of somebody to their face when you were a kid? You know? Call them names. And then you get older and you're like, whoa, it's really inappropriate to say things like this to people's faces. I really shouldn't do that. It's kind of mean and they feel bad and then I feel bad for making them feel bad. So I'll just talk about them behind their back. I think we all do it to some extent. This is a real issue that needs to be dealt with in the church. This is a real sin issue that needs to, that needs to be addressed in your heart. Just stop and think and take a minute about who have you talked about this last week? 
And immediately you think of the people you talk about, and then immediately you justify, well, I wasn't, I wasn't talking about them behind their back. I wasn't gossiping. I wasn't ripping on them. I wasn't saying this or that. I was just expressing what I was thinking, and I was talking about the things that were going through my head, and I just explaining to this other person what that person did. I was just informing them of the situation. That's not gossip. I was just, I was just talking. So easy to just justify our sin. Like it's not wicked and evil. The things that you say about people behind their back, think about it. Was it encouraging and helpful and loving? I'm not saying we can't have conversations about certain things, but there is a fine line between encouraging, Christ-centered, loving discussion about another person and gossip and slander and obscene, malicious, e- maliciously evil talk. There's a fine line, very fine line, and we tow it. We tow that line, and we tend to justify it like, well, I'm on this side of the line, I'm just discussing, and then we quickly veer off course and end up gossiping. Because if you really check your heart, when we're saying those things, you really check the condition of your heart, what are you doing? You're getting it off your chest. You're frustrated with something that someone did or said, and you have to tell someone else about it because you're frustrated by it. And it's not done in the context of, hey, brother, sister in Christ, I'm frustrated, and I need to have a conversation in a healthy and safe space where I can tell you what I'm thinking about this person, and you can check me on my sin, you can check the condition of my heart. Okay, this is what happened. This person said this or that. This is how it makes me feel. And then that person says, listen... I hear what you're saying. You need to forgive that person. You need to love that person. You need to be like Christ of that person. And you need to stop this talk that's gossip. You can't walk around talking trash about this person. You've got to love them. That's a healthy experience that prevents gossip. But we don't do it that way. We go from person to person to person. We're like, yeah, well, this person said this or that. Blah, 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 and then we just love. Really, check, the, check your heart. You know what's going on. You know that's what's really going on. You just, you just got to get it out. I'm frustrated, I'm angry, and I just got to like spew this out about the, these people or what they said or did. And it's malicious speech. It's killing spiritual growth in churches. There's a solution to it, though. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. <laughs> it's just... Take a step back with that verse for a second. First of all, instead of being angry with them or being frustrated with them or being irritated with them and then talking trash about them, what if we were just kind to them? And what if we were tender-hearted to the point of understanding that maybe this person is this way for a reason that I can help with instead of feeling like I'm the victim of their sin? And then forgiving them. Like, okay, maybe this person has no excusable reason for how they just treated me or what they said to me, but it doesn't matter. I have to forgive them because I love to forgive and I love to forgive because I was forgiven for much worse. If God treated us the way we treat each other, can you imagine how much trouble we'd be in? The sin and offense that we have done to God with our flesh is so much greater than any offense that anyone has ever given to you. I mean, Jesus tells an entire parable about it. 
with the ruler who, who's got the guy that owes him money, but that ruler owes the king money, and the ruler says to the servant, you owe me money, and the king calls in the ruler and says, you owe me money, and the ruler goes, I don't have it, and the king goes, I forgive you, you don't worry about it. And then the ruler goes back to the servant and says, you owe me money. And the king goes, dude, I forgave you a much bigger debt than that guy owes you. And you still charged him. You go to jail or you die. That's the same thing. God looks at us and goes, I forgave you much for, for, for way more than what they offended you with. And you won't forgive them? And Jesus says in Matthew 5, I'm going to read it because I don't want you thinking that this is my interpretation. I'm going to read it. For if, this is Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's foolishness to speak about people this way because all it is is our interpretation of what they could have thought or been thinking or said or did and all we want to do then is take our interpretation and spew it out of our mouths and share our opinion that lacks understanding when Paul told us in Ephesians 4.32 to be kind to one another, tenderhearted and forgiving which requires understanding people. Understanding and Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And then we're warned in Psalm 49.20, Man in his pomp, that word pomp, the Hebrew word for pomp, which is ge'eon, that's what it looks like, I don't know how you actually pronounce it. Anyways, the, the word is pomp, it means arrogant pride. Man in his arrogant pride, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. If a kind and tender heart is our natural disposition because we are spirit-filled, then being understanding will be our immediate reaction instead of offensive, instead of being offended. And that offense leads to malicious speech. But it won't if we take Ephesians 4.32 and make it who we are. Understanding, kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. The third and fourth uh, on the list is slander and obscene talk. Now, the Greek word for slander is blasphemia, from which we get our English word blasphemy. When this word is used towards God, it's blasphemy. When it's used towards people, it's slander. But John MacArthur says this. He says, to slander people is to blaspheme God. I mean, think about it like this. If... I look at you and you say, I'm saved by the grace of God and faith in Christ, Jesus alone. You know, we're just saying by grace and grace alone. I, if, if, if you're talking to a believer and that person offends you or they sin against you and you slander them or maybe they haven't done anything to you and you slander them, you're lying, right? And you make up stuff about them because you don't like them for whatever reason. Either way, whether they've offended you or not, you slandered this person. It's blasphemy to God because you're looking at a Christian 
whom God has also looked at. So you're looking at this person, and God's looking at this person. And we're looking at God, and God's looking at us, and they're looking at God, and they're looking at you. Make sense? So you've got this triad, this triangle of understanding that there are three people involved in this relationship. Believer, yourself, and God. And you and God are looking at that believer, and God goes, what a beautiful mess that I have taken and changed into glory. I have taken this wretched, wicked, despicable, disgusting, putrid, ugly, terrible, nasty, I could go on and on with adjectives, wicked, wicked human being who hates me, according to Romans 3, and I have, by my grace, changed them into the righteousness of God in Christ. And now they are this beautiful, glorious, wonderful, Christ-like expression of my son, whom is God, their savior and their master. And I am sanctifying them and changing them into more beauty and more glory by filling them with more joy, by sanctifying them and challenging them and chiseling away at their sin and working on them and loving them and being merciful and gracious to them because I love them with a love that no other human could possibly understand. And we over here, we go, that person's stupid. And they're dumb and they're mean and I hate them. And I'm going to talk trash about them because I don't like them and they do things that don't make me happy. Which means you're looking at God and going, God, your decision to have that perspective on that person makes you dumb. And you would never say that about God, but you do with your heart. When you think about it like that, it's a little bigger deal than just words. It's a heart, a heart condition that is a serious problem with God. Listen, Christians are going to frustrate you. No one's perfect, and God didn't make every personality compatible with every personality. <laughs> There's going to be people who just don't click with you. But we are to be tender-hearted, loving, understanding, kind, and forgiving to one another. It's blasphemy because James 3.9 says, he's talking about the tongue. He says, with it, it being the tongue. So with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. Mm, isn't that great? We show up to church on Sunday. We use our tongue, our mouth, and we sing praises. By grace and grace alone. And we're like, yeah, woo, Jesus. Mm. Yeah, we sing songs. And Pastor Mark preaches and you're like, amen. Yeah, woo, yeah, I like it. Oh, man, good word. And then... The second half of verse 39, and with it, the tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And we walk out the church doors and we're like, ugh, Susie, da 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 da, she did this and said that, and Billy said this and he did that, and uh, the way they looked at me today, oh my gosh, did you see how they were dressed? Oh, they walked right past me, didn't even say hi. I, mean, I don't know what, what, what things, you know, and, and we go from using the same tongue that we use to worship and bless God to immediately using it to curse people. I mean, this is the verse that, is, that, that basically is the same thing that you hear growing up, right? Do you kiss your mother with that mouth? You know? Do you bless your God with that mouth? 
Verse 10 of James 3, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And listen to what he says. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Now, obscene talk, obscene talk is derogatory speech that is intentionally hurting people. Making fun of somebody qualifies for this sin. Racist comments qualify for this sin. Calling someone stupid qualifies for this sin. Going on Facebook and calling a group of people that is not, you're not directly speaking to qualifies for this sin. Going online and saying, Democrats are stupid is sin. Liberals are dumb is sin. You can't call people names. You can't make fun of It's not fitting for Christians. You can have an opinion about other people who think differently than you, and there are appropriate ways to deal with it, but we need to be careful how we express those thoughts. And again, I take it back to Proverbs 18, 2, that a fool cares only in expressing his opinion instead of understanding people. Obscene talk is often foul-mouthed using inappropriate slang and cussing. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.4, listen to this. This is, a, this is especially appropriate for children, kids. Listen to this. Let there be, it's appropriate for everybody, but kids don't have that governing factor yet worked out. So adults, if this is you, we've got a lot of work. Kids, this is a great opportunity to get ahead of the game. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, meaning out of place for believers, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is how your mouth responds when it has a thankful heart, meaning the solution solution to obscene and abusive talk is to be thankful for for, for everything, for all the things. That means that the person who bugs you the most is the person you should be working hardest to be thankful for. Have you thanked God recently for that person that you can't stand? Whether they're a believer or not, have you thanked God for them? And you think to yourself, why would I thank God for somebody that I can't stand, that I'd rather, be, I'd rather they be out of my life than in my life? Why would I be thankful for them? Because we're commanded to be thankful for all things, 1 Thessalonians 5. So that means that we need to work at being thankful even for the things that we think we don't like. Have you been thankful for that person? Have you ever considered that maybe God, in his infinite wisdom, has aligned you with that person just for your sanctification and maybe for theirs too? Think maybe God is actively and intentionally putting particular people in your life that you need in order to grow up? And if God has intentionally given them to you for your sanctification, then shouldn't we be thankful for God and for his wisdom to provide that which we need, even if it's not something that we actually want? And now let's think about it practically. Has your anger, frustration, and all the things that come with it toward that person, has all the gossiping and talking and trash talking and frustration and anger and all those things you feel towards that person, has any of that actually fixed, helped, solved any of your problems with that person? Has it made you healthier and happier? No, it doesn't work. What you're doing isn't working. That's the whole reason Jesus came to earth, was because what you're doing, guys, isn't working. You need a solution. You need a new heart. 
Ezekiel 36, 26. I'll take their heart of stone, I will destroy it, and I'll give them a soft heart, a new heart, a heart of flesh, an amiable heart, and I'll fill it with the Holy Spirit. And that's why Christ comes. And Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. And if, if we have to pray for our enemies, how much more should we be praying for our brother or sister in Christ or anybody, really, who frustrates us? And the final sin in the list is number five, do not lie to one another. We all know that. We know we shouldn't lie. You don't need me to tell you that lying is sin. You don't need to tell me. You don't need me to tell you that you shouldn't lie. You know that. But do you ever think about where it comes from? I mean, lying is Satan's first sin toward mankind. This is how sin entered the flesh, through a lie. In John 8, 44, Jesus says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And just before that, Jesus said that lying is not of the truth. And then he also said that if you lie and are not of the truth, then you are of your father, the devil. Because lies and truth cannot reside together. We see that in 1 John 2.21. He says, no lie is of the truth. Lying is an abuse of the tongue. And it comes from a heart that does not know truth or love truth. And it is a fire starter that can set an entire church on fire to its destruction. We'll talk more about lying next week as we kind of transition through verse 9 and see how lying is incorporated in verse 9 and 10. So we'll deal with that a little bit more next week. But the question, the take-home question is this. How do we put these sins to death? If, if I'm dealing with any of these sins that are really a condition of the heart that are expressed through the way that I speak, how do I put them to death as Paul says to do in verse 5? Put these sins to death. Well, we need to smother them, drown them, and suffocate sin with righteousness. Because we are trying to deal with the heart, not the actions. If you're trying to change the actions, then the answer is morality. If you're trying to change the heart, which is the cause of the problem, then the answer is righteousness. So we must deal with the heart by changing how we think. How do you change your heart? We say heart and we point to our chest. Your heart is really your mind. That's what we're expressing. We say heart, but it's really our thoughts. The way we think is what creates our actions. Our actions follow our mind. This is why we're commanded to have the mind of Christ. We develop the mind of Christ by being in the word of God. In the word of God and in prayer and communion with God, he grows the mind of Christ in us. The more we become like Christ, the more we have that mind of Christ, and the more our decisions start to reflect the heart of Christ in us. So in order to change the heart, we have to change the way we think. And so what should we think about? Well, isn't it wonderful that Scripture tells us exactly what we should think about? Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. So let me ask you something. Is there anything excellent? Is there anything worthy of praise? Can you name one? I do. He has a name. 
and he's the only name that saves, and he's the name that's above all names. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is excellent, and he is worthy of praise. And that is how we overcome these heart issues, by changing the way we think. And to change the way we think, we have to think about Christ, and we have to think about Christ's truth, and his honor, and his justice, and his purity, and his love, and his excellence, and his worthiness, which produces praise to him, and joy in us, in him. And our joy in others will replace our anger and our wrath and our malice and our slander and our obscene talk and our deceptive lying tongues. As that new habit develops in your heart, you don't have to work too hard at guiding your tongue because it will follow the condition of your heart as you grow in the mind of Christ. Now, normally I'm done right there, but I have one little thing. I'm always telling you guys, I always, I mean, seriously, like almost every Sunday, I'm like, so what's the practical application here? Read your Bibles and pray every day. Okay? That's the answer. Read your Bible and pray every day. That's, that's it. I, I already told you about communion with God. I talk about it all the time. And until I feel like everyone is doing it, I'm going to keep saying it. So there's a lot of other practical applications. I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to give you these applications. I don't know every single thought and situation every single person I can't make applications that addresses everybody I can make implications of the text and I can give you guidance but it's the Holy Spirit who has to take these truths and apply them to you okay so though I always say be in the word and in prayer and that's how you gain the mind of Christ and with the mind of Christ you'll start to grow and be sanctified out of these sins and toward Christ's likeness we also give you lots of ways to make that happen to be in the Word and to be in prayer. We have prayer service every Sunday morning at 9.30. We're praying before church. Today there were like 15 people in there, 10 or 15, I don't know, 10 people in there, okay? Tuesday morning, women's Bible study, 6 a.m. Friday morning, men's Bible study, 6 a.m. Thursday night, life group, two Friday night life groups. I think there's maybe, yeah, two Friday night life groups, one Thursday night life group, church on Sunday morning, and hopefully there'll be even more things as we continue. But we are giving you many opportunities to be in the Word. And though we give you all those opportunities, I'm going to give you one more. Okay. I made these just for you because I love you so much. And as you look at them, you'll realize that I am, I am um, efficient only in word processing, not in art or design. <laughs> 21 days with Jesus. Okay. So here's what I did. I wanted to give you something tangible to take home. I know I haven't like, ever really done this before, but I just felt like I should do it. There was a pile of these on the back table. There's 30 of them. If we run out, and we better run out, if we run out, see me and I'll print off another one for you right at my desk, okay? Um, what it is, is I, there's a little bit of explanation on the front, but all it is, it's very simple. Okay? And, I, and I put dates on it. Instead of saying day one, I put Sunday, July 24th. So if you get behind, you'll feel convicted to catch up. So <laughs> just staying on top of you guys, all right? And so all it is is it says, it's, it's just a walk through the book of John, through the gospel of John. Okay, so it just says day, uh, Sunday, July 24th, John 1. Observations, questions. I'm not asking you to do this like four-hour Bible study. I'm asking you to read one chapter of the book of John, the Gospel of John, write down any observations you have or any questions that might come up from it, and we'll deal with them later. 
Okay, next day, Monday, July 25th. And I also intentionally put Sunday on here so you didn't feel like you could skip today because you went to church. It starts today. <laughs> okay, so, and then you do the same thing. Monday, and it's all it is. It's just, it's very simple. This is not supposed to be this massively intense thing. This is just a way for you to, f- to, to have something from me for you to say, I want you in the Word every day. I want you in the Word for 21 days. Guess how many chapters are in the book of John, of the Gospel of John? 21. So 21 days of Jesus. So I studied psychology in college, and I've heard lots of different numbers about this, but this is the real number, so don't let anyone confuse you, okay? It takes 21 days to create a new habit. And there's 21... (laughs) No, I'm not... I'm not saying like, you know, oh, it's a mystical, it is crazy, it's not some mystical thing that God did. I'm just saying, it just happened. I was like, oh, I'd love to do like, you know, 21 days to give people a new habit. And I was like, what book should I do? Oh, I'll do John. And then I looked at John, I'm like, oh, John has 21 chapters. Thanks, God. So, just 21 days with Jesus, you just grab one and start today. You read one chapter a day, it's that simple. Write some observations, some questions, and, and you just do with it as you please when you're done. But this will help keep you accountable to just being in the word. And there's no better word to be in than to walk with Christ through the Gospel of John, or really any book of the Bible is equally as wonderful. But I just chose John because it's that one Gospel that's a little unique. So take one of these on your way out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we trust you. We know that you love us and, and, and you know that we love you because you love because you first loved us. And we want to express that love by being in your word and being close to you and, and being in fellowship with you and with the body and with believers. So encourage our hearts and our minds to faithfulness for you and for your church and help us to hold each other accountable and help us to use our tongue in a way that brings you honor, which means we need a heart transplant we need like a heart fix we need to get to the root of the issue which is the way that we think so fix our hearts with your word and then let our speech bring you honor and glory we pray this in jesus name amen Amen.